We welcome you to the 2021 Eschatology Series, a series that unfolds the power of ancient prophecies. Our series is based on the book of Revelation. Let's get started.
everything else is shaking, Lord. My hiding place, my strong tower, refuge, my hiding place. Unfolding the Power of Prophecy. This is our Revelation 2021 series. Can you imagine a world dominated by righteousness and goodness? A world where there is no injustice, where no court ever renders an unjust verdict, and where everyone is treated fairly. Imagine a world where what is true Right and noble marks every aspect of life, including interpersonal relationships, commerce, education, and government. Imagine a world where there is complete, total, enforced, and permanent peace, where joy abounds and good health prevails, so much so that people live for hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse is removed, where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even in the animal kingdom, so that the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and a leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, and the fat lean together and a little boy will lead them. That's right out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect, glorious ruler who instantly and firmly deals with sin. Humanly speaking, the description may seem far-fetched and a utopian fantasy that could never be reality. Yet it accurately describes conditions during the future earthly kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my dear friends, is called the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Once the enemy is bound, tossed into the lake of fire, chained up for a thousand years, this type of world I just described is what will rule the world 
during the time of the thousand-year reign. The Millennial Kingdom is called by many names in Scripture. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus calls it the Regeneration. Acts 3.19 describes the kingdom as times of refreshing, while verse 21 of that chapter calls it a period of restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul refers to it in Ephesians 1.10 as an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Well, we're going to begin talking about that today. This is number 66. It's called Dealing with the Devil. Before we get into those details, let's take a look at our scripture for today. This is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And it says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. In chapter 19, we saw the great white horse and his rider. And in this chapter, we see the white throne of judgment and balancing of moral scales. As a reminder, Christ is here on earth, has removed the beast and the false prophet by throwing them into the lake of fire. And now we start this wonderful chapter with Christ binding and sending Satan to the pit For a thousand years. He is removing all distractions and potential conflict as he sets the stage for judgment. But before I commentate on chapter 20, I want to address a common factor that Christians struggle with reading the final two chapters of Revelation. And that is none other than fear. So let's take a look at Fear Not, My Child. Our first passage there is Matthew 24, verse 4. And it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Important note. Matthew 24, verse 5 says, For many will come in my name, saying, 
I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And then, in verse 6, it says, You will be hearing of wars, and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Well, in Matthew 24, verse 4, Christ foretells the going forth of deceivers. He begins with a caution. See to it that no one misleads you. The disciples expected to be told when these things should be. They wanted to be let in on the secret. But this caution only piqued their curiosity. Christ wanted the disciples to mind their duty, follow him, and not be seduced from following him. Fact is, that Christ conceals much of the prophetic knowledge because of evildoers, not bridal members. If Christ had and has revealed what the Father has concealed, the lawless men would use it to mislead many. And this is why the prophecy stated in the book of Revelation continues to be a mystery to most. Most inquisitive types need to be kept away from the secret things of God, for otherwise they will use them to seduce. Second Thessalonians 2.3 tells us, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Let's take a look at those seducers of the church. Christ reveals that seducers are more dangerous enemies to the church than persecutors. In this discourse, he mentions the appearance of false prophets three times. The appearance of these seducers was the occasion of dividing the people into parties and fractions, which made their ruin the more easy and speedy and the sin of many that were led aside by them helped to fill the measure. Secondly, it was a trial to the disciples of Christ, and therefore agreeable to their state of probation or trial, that which are perfect may be made manifest. This is the message for the bride, that we would be perfected, by staying on our toes. Let's review the apostasy must come. Most conservative Christians are annoyed by other Christians who are liberal in their thinking, not believing the word to be literal. In the end times, many bridal members will view the word of God as primarily cultural, not literal or absolute. Christ warned us of these times. By the way, we are in those times right now. This period of Christianity is called the apostasy. There will first come a falling away, 
We may not be in the middle of the great apostasy, but we certainly are entering the warm-up stage. We need to watch the primary evidence for the bridal members becoming more offended by what Christ says than what non-Christians are saying. This is why the divorce rate in America is higher within the Christian church than it is in the world. The bridal members are abusing the scriptures to prove their rights as humans. It has become my overall experience as a counselor as I have much better working relationship with non-believers than most Christians. That is a sad story. These are just the birth pains of apostasy. This apostasy will not be within civil government, but in spiritual or religious matters. Sound doctrine, instituted worship and church government, and a holy life. The Apostle Paul speaks of great apostasy, not only of some converted Jews or Gentiles, but also of Christians in general. It is what I refer to as the gradual apostasy. The purpose of the apostasy is to reveal the rise of the Antichrist, and of course that's Satan. Take note of this. No sooner was Christianity planted and rooted in the world than there began to be a defection in the Christian church. Whenever God lays absolutes down, Satan starts an apostasy, and the self-proclaimed Christians began resisting authority. We see evidence of this in our culture today. If you study the first-generation church, you will see the evidence of this slow fade. As soon as Jesus ascended, Satan descended on the church to lay the cornerstone for the great apostasy. The warning for those of us that believe God in what God says must be prepared for Satan to create in us a falling away each time we decide to put our foot down. Apostasy always follows covenant unless blocked by embracing absolutes. James 1, 2 through 4 tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The suffering state of the Bride of Christ in this world is represented in this message in a very instructive manner. If we attend to what is plainly and necessarily implied, together with what is fully expressed, we will experience joy. It is implied that troubles and affliction may be the lot in life for most Christians, even those who have a spoiled or overprotective lifestyle, we can walk in the constant state of joy, yet endure very grievous afflictions. Joy does not mean living a pain-free life. The bride of Christ must not think it strange if they encounter troubles. 
These outward afflictions and troubles can only provide a temptation to walk in despair. They cannot force us to give up our joy. Satan uses hardship and suffering to draw men to sin and detour them from their duties as bridal members. Well, let's talk about the sovereignty of afflictions. Our afflictions are in God's hands. That's a fact. They are intended for the trial and improvement of our walk in Christ. The only way to remove the impurities in raw gold is to purify it by fire. So it is with the Christians. We, too, must be baptized by fire. It's a part of our commitment to the groom. Our trials may be of many and different kinds, and therefore we need to put on the whole armor of God. We must be armed on every side because temptations lie on all sides. The trials of a good man are such as he does not create to himself nor sinfully pull upon himself the sins that are around him. All that to say, do not fear for any of the details that we have mentioned. Revelation unfolds, particularly the last three chapters of our study, the reality of what happens to people of unbelief. Truth is, the story has a happy ending for those who are in Christ. If you fear that Christ does not live in you, consider praying a salvation prayer. Now let's take a look at Satan is Bound. Here's what we are going to see in this chapter. Number one, the binding and tossing of Satan into the fiery lake. He will be sent to the prison of the abyss, pit of hell, for a thousand years. Two, the reign of Christ and the saints for one thousand wonderful years. Three, the sinners and saints will be judged. Four, Satan is loosed for a small period of time to wage war with Christ. That's called the Battle of Armageddon. He attempts to control the world one last time. He makes use of all those who were judged and condemned, the people from all corners of the earth, commonly referred to as Gog and Magog. It is time for Satan to get bound by the chains of heaven. These aren't chains as you and I are used to seeing or hearing about. These chains will have the power of God in them. That means that no matter how powerful the devil thinks he is, he will not break loose of this hole. Either Satan is stupid or he is missing a few gears in his gearbox. Even after Christ's coming and destroying his system or empire, by burning it to the ground, tosses his beast and false prophet into the lake of fire by one spoken word and wiping out his entire army in less than an hour. How does this convince Satan that he can resist the hand of God? I think the depravity of Satan is far more deceptive than my human mind can behold. An old friend said to me once, Sin makes us stupid. 
Well, if Satan is sin, he really must be stupid. And this chapter proves it. This angel comes from heaven with the key to hell and chains made by God's hand. Hands them to Christ, and Christ gets a hold of the dragon, Satan, binds him up, and tosses him into the pit. The age-old curiosity has always been, is Satan a real dragon or a symbol for Satan? I will not address that because I don't know. And the scriptures continually use the term serpent, of old, snake, dragon, and like-minded labels. But our Lord must answer that curiosity. But in my mind, seeing is believing, and we will not know the true meaning behind the quote-unquote symbols until that hour. Let's look at peace, peace, but there is no peace. There can be no millennium, not at a time of real peace, as long as Satan is on the loose. We know without question that Satan is the god of the entire world during this time, as it was during this confrontation. As the Lord calls him, the prince of the power of the air is walking around on the earth like a roaring lion hungry enough to eat or destroy everything in his path, with the deception that he can devour Christ Jesus as well. He truly is delusional. The key to remember here is that he has disguised himself as a minister of righteousness and, of course, an angel of light. This is not a dark creature from one of Hollywood's movies. This being has the entire world convinced that he is the answer to all his followers' questions that are in existence during this time. For certain, this is his day in the sun. At least he thinks. He knows that he is the prince of the air and the god of this age, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and then again in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. His power has gone to his head, and Jesus is about to turn his day in the sun into a thousand years of darkness in the pit. This we do know. There can be no peace on earth and goodwill toward men until this being is in the pit, bound up by the chains of heaven. If you remember in Jude 9, Michael the archangel of warfare dared not confront this prince. He said, The Lord rebukes you. If the angel in charge of spiritual warfare dared not take Satan on, you could be assured that this active binding fulfills what Michael projected. The binding of Satan reveals to us that it is God and God alone that has the power to bind this thing at an appointed time. No army can or could stop him. All deeds of attempting to stop the prince of power are fruitless. This binding moment is significant and timely. Also keep in mind that the thousand years he is bound is only a day to the Lord. 
That is why it is called the Day of Judgment. According to the Hebrew text and Jewish belief and reasoning, these 6,000 years now drawing to a close corresponds with the six days in which God created the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, God rested from his work, and in the light of God's years, he is still in the first week of creationism. He's about to rest permanently from the toil that this rebel has erupted for the Lord's past six days. The Lord is entering into his Sabbath rest. Humans tend to believe that a thousand years is a very long time. But if you look at it from God's perspective, from Adam to the second Adam to this moment, we are looking at about six days of the Lord. To put Satan in his place, it took God creating this earth, the burial place of Satan and all of his followers, forming man, which was the selection process to secure a bride for his son, and allowing Satan to rule as the God of this age, just so the father could back him into a corner to punish him for attempting to steal the role of the father when he was an angel of light in heaven. And at that time, his name was Lucifer. Okay, so what's up with God turning this horrible being loose again after the Lord has a day of rest? Here God accomplished the destruction of the new Babylon, had a wedding ceremony of the Lamb of God, sent the beast and the false prophet to the lake of fire in his first battle with the armies of Satan, sealed Satan in the pit for a thousand years, and now letting this evil go free again? That should pose a question for all of us. Why does God release him one more time? Keep in mind that Israel will be in her land for 1,000 years in their natural or earthly bodies. She will build houses and live in them. She will plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. She will multiply by the millions according to Isaiah 65 through chapter 66. And at the end of the millennium, there will be millions on earth who have never been tested and tempted. If God did not permit them to be tested, as were Adam and Eve and the rest of us, then God would be showing favoritism, which God does not do, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Knowing that all who were born during the millennium must go through the same refining process that the rest of the bride of Christ had to endure. Satan will be loosed for a season, but the word of God does not tell us how long this season will be. But my guess the battle of Armageddon will be short and sweet, to the point ending all wars for eternity. We'll talk more about what that battle looks like and why that battle must occur in upcoming episodes.
In conclusion, as crazy as it sounds, Satan will offer the same junk he offered Adam and Eve in the garden. Even though the temptation was to be like God, his objective was for Adam and Eve to be like him. In his last desperate attempt to overthrow God's throne, which is now being represented in the core of the new temple, remembering we just went through that thousand-year reign, this mindless being will offer power and self-life glory to all those who are willing to be like him. Many will most likely rally around Satan in his last stand and attempt to take the holy city, Jerusalem, to crush the saints and Israel, who, by the way, were initially freed from the power of sin, curse, due to his 1,000-year binding. More to be said in our next episode. Coming up next is number 67, the Millennium Reign of Christ Jesus. We're going to be talking about the goal and the authentic and serious descendants of Ishmael, those Muslims, and what their opinion is of the Christians, or at this point in time they will be that 144,000 pure bloodline Jews. Today, if you watch the news, you're going to hear more and more about the beheadings that are taking place around the planet. The tradition of beheadings for Muslims is as old as the Muslim faith itself. If you ask most why they practice such barbaric traditions, the answer you will get is that the Quran requires of them in order to gain extra rewards, brownie points, in their paradise. In fact, in the Quran, in Surah, chapter 8, verse 12, it says, I will cast dread into the hearts of the unbelievers. Strike off their heads, then strike off their fingertips. In the original text, the relevant phrase is strike over their necks. This is probably going to be difficult for some listeners to get through this next episode because we live in a world today where you don't attack any faith. But the reality is on God's part, unless they come through Jesus Christ himself, that narrow gate, they will not be accepted into God's eternity. More about that in our next episode. Until next time. Music